welcome to Buddhism for Beginners, a podcast on foundational Buddhist teachings and techniques to use in your everyday life. This podcast is a production of Kunzang Payal Choling, a Buddhist center in the Payal lineage of the Nyingma School of Tibetan Buddhism. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot org. When Jetsama was in her early 20s, she practiced examining all aspects of life, physical, mental, emotional. What she found in the things of samsara, there's no future in this. At the time, meditating upon the natural luminous state that is free of contrivance, she would cry, realizing that this primordial nature is free of all causes of suffering, yet none of us have awakened to it. This practice, clearly outlined in detail, gives rise to a breadth and depth of compassion that makes the rest of one's life very simple. Accomplishing this, there is no longer any decision to be made. All of one's life becomes a vehicle to benefit all beings. Later, Jetsama learned that this practice is called Chud in Tibet. I have this very good old new friend from New Zealand who has come to visit us, and I'm I'm very happy to have her. And uh, she has requested that I give her a teaching based on my earlier, my own personal practice, my earlier practice of Chud. And so I'm going to, to accomplish that today, I hope. I don't know if I'll accomplish it, but at least I'll talk about it. So uh, the main thought about uh, this uh, teaching that I'm going to describe to you is that and you have to understand that all of this occurred before I ever met with my root guru, uh, with, with either one of my root gurus. I have two root gurus. So I hadn't met with either of them. I had not met with the path called Buddhism in this lifetime. I had not read any books about Buddhism, didn't know anything about Buddhism. In fact, I'm embarrassed to say now that I thought the Tibetans were kind of smelly old guys that sat on rugs. (laughs) I really did think like that. I'm sorry, but, you know, that is the truth. And I am bound to tell the truth. So here I was. uh, I was about, um, at the time, I think I was 20. And I had known for about one year that I had to engage in a course of preparation for some later events in my life. I really didn't know what the later events were. Um, I had no idea about being connected with Buddhism or anything like that. But I've always known that there would be something, and I've always known that I should begin to prepare for it. And so at the age of 19, I received certain indications that it was time to prepare. And so I had already begun on my program of meditation, and at that time, um, I did, uh, right around the time that I was 20, I had my first son, gave birth to my first son, and he was a very cooperative son. Uh, he was willing to take naps during the day so that I could meditate. And uh, I swear I didn't bonk him over the head or anything. He just took naps. And so I was able to engage in meditation in the morning, early in the morning, and then in the afternoon during his nap time, and then later on in the evening. And I was very much involved with it. With it. My, my feeling for the meditation, for my practice, was that this was really the main part of my life, and everything else was kind of black and white. You know, that was the color part, somehow. So, in my practice, uh, every time I would come to a place where I felt as though I had engaged in a certain element of my practice for long enough, or it just simply felt naturally time to move on, I would request inwardly and, and request to, I have to say, the absolute nature, which is the way I understood divinity at that time. What was the next step? How could I practice, and and how should I continue to grow and engage? And this one time, I received sort of an awareness and an indication and instruction that I should begin to practice in a certain way. And so here's what my practice looked like. Um, I would actually, at that time, I didn't know that it's better to meditate sitting up. So uh, I meditated some of the time laying down uh, and some of the time sitting up. And I actually found that uh, when I laid down, I would fall asleep. So eventually I developed the habit of sitting up. So 
So slowly, slowly we find our way. And uh, what I would do is I would set up kind of a symbolic altar. I had a, a dresser top that I would use for this purpose. And at this time I thought that I would put representations of all things physical. So I had some plants, um, leaves and things like that. I had some food. Uh, I think it was uh, fruit generally, that kind of thing. Um, pebbles, rocks, brightly colored things from outside. And then I put a mirror because somehow instinctively I understood that although I, I didn't, I was in sort of a quandary. I hadn't had any teachings yet. I, I, was, I was extremely spiritually oriented, yet the only teachings I'd received indicated that God was kind of an old guy with a beard that sat on a throne somewhere. And, uh, you know, he was making X's if you were bad and, and checks if you were good. And that was pretty much my understanding of what religion was in our time. And I didn't really buy into that. I really didn't feel that that was appropriate or acceptable, and it seemed to me just not right. So my understanding of the, of, of the divine nature or what was called God at that time, uh, I had to develop from within myself. And I didn't like to use uh, the word God because I thought that indicated we were talking about something separate. I really felt that whatever that absolute nature is, that it is absolute to the point where it cannot be separated from one thing and another. That whatever that nature is, it must be all pervasive. That it must be the same nature that causes fruit to ripen or flowers to come forth in the springtime as it is to make my own heart beat. And I really thought that was it. That I didn't know what to call it, but that was absolutely it. And so, as, as well as I could understand, I began to meditate on what Buddhists call the primordial wisdom nature or uh, the uncontrived natural primordial view. There are many different ways to describe it, but that was what my meditation consisted of. And so my altar had a mirror on it. It had all of these things that represented earth, and in my mind, that represented all that is form and all that is formless, all that is physical, or uh, I didn't have the word samsaric, or I didn't have the, world, uh, the word, uh, the idea of, of, of things that are contained in the cycle of death and rebirth, I merely thought of things that are displayed in form and those things which were absolute and natural and uncontrived. So I thought my altar encompassed both elements of reality. And I was pretty satisfied with that as being something I could work with. So I began my practice and I used to meditate on this absolute nature and I used to think, this, this nature, what is it? What is it like? What is this thing? And I would think to myself, well, this is the same nature that causes flowers to open, the same nature that causes my heart to beat, the same nature that causes my son to be born to me, the same nature that makes people love each other. It, it must be that this nature is sort of the, the fundamental, foundational, underlying reality. And so I thought like that. Instinctively, I understood that this nature was natural and uncontrived. Like, for instance, if we were to meditate or sort of rest in that nature, we wouldn't be thinking, oh, I want this or I don't want that. Uh, this is beautiful and that's ugly. We wouldn't be thinking like that. It, I, I understood that that nature was some kind of restful state that was spontaneous and luminous, but free of contrivance, free of the distinction of, self and other, free of the distinction of good and bad, hot and cold, ugly or beautiful, here or there even. So I didn't even think that in this state time and space actually applied. I, had no, I realized this state was free of that kind of defining or discriminating conceptualization. And so I thought to myself, this is the underlying reality. And when I meditated on that state, I knew or I tasted that upon holding the mind in a natural restful state in that natural restful state free of contrivance free of discrimination there was no potential for suffering in that natural state because nothing that causes suffering was there grasping and desire wasn't there hatred wasn't there selfishness wasn't there um uh, anger wasn't there. Ignorance wasn't there. We weren't, when, when we meditate on that state, we're not blind to that state. So I didn't feel like there was ignorance there or dullness. 
any of those things that caused suffering, I felt, were not inherently there in that nature. So I began to think, this nature, this is something. This is something. This is really something. And so the practice that I engaged in, and this is how I was instructed to do so, was the practice of initially realizing the nature and then examining the cycle of death and rebirth, or what, we, what I've now come to understand is called samsara. So I examined the, I examined the cycle of death and rebirth, and even, even that term I didn't have, cycle of death and rebirth. You have to understand, I hadn't heard any of these words before. So I was pinning my own words to this idea or concept or reality that, I have to say, reality that I was sensing and concept that I was thinking about. So I began to think out, what is this life that we're living then? This is this absolute nature. Now, what is this life that we're living out, where we remain kind of blind to this nature? And I began to really probe this, this life and try to see, well, what's the best thing this life can give me or give anyone, and what's the worst? So I began to examine all the different scenarios associated with ordinary life. Well, at that time, I was living on a beautiful farm in North Carolina. And I was, um, uh, and, well, I see I was 20, so I was just over the line. I would have to say I was potentially aging hippie girl. So I was living on this farm, and I had this idea of going back to the land, and I was growing food. Um, I, I, I was learning how to grow a garden. Uh, at the time, I thought I was so cool with that and so sophisticated. Later found out that. The farmers around us just really thought we were going to starve to death if we were any dumber. <laughs> but anyway, we were doing our best, and I learned how to can beans and all that stuff. So I had this wonderful thing going on, and we were, I was living at the foot of Pisgah Mountain. I could walk out on my porch and see Pisgah Mountain. I had a beautiful little baby boy, beautiful blonde hair. He looked like an angel. And... Uh, I had a wonderful husband, and everything was just great. So I tried to think to myself, so this life, what is it? What, what, what could it be like? And I thought, well, what is the best case, case scenario? You know, this whole scene that I have right here, what's the best way this could work out? All right, so I really played with this a little bit. I thought, okay, first of all, first of all, this is my initial demand. I never get old. No aging happens here. These things, in my fantasy, they weren't going to happen. And when I am queen, they won't. So, it wasn't going, I really thought, okay, I'm not going to age. This is the first thing. Nobody ages in this, this so it, we don't age. Uh, or at least I personally uh, find the secret is to how to use Estee Lauder products perfectly, which I am ever questing this. Uh, and I find the way to use them perfectly, and, and she comes finally out with that new product, the one that I'm waiting for her to come out with, the one that makes everything better. And the same thing with my husband. There's the male version of Estee Lauder. We put it on him. He's great, too. <laughs> my child does grow up, but, of course, he never ages either. And um, my child, of course, grows up to be president, or maybe first a doctor and then president, <laughs> you know? And at his inauguration speech, as well as when he receives his, his, his medical degree, at both of those occasions, he says, it was my mom that made it possible. <laughs> And, of course, I still look, you know, I'm very young, and, of course, I'm much more beautiful than I've ever been in my life. So this is, so far, this is working out pretty well, don't you think? And every time I see my husband, we never get into that place in marriage where you wake up next to each other and go, hi. Mm. We never got to that point. In this fantasy, it was always like, you know, the Breck, those old Breck commercials. Every time we see each other, we come bounding across the room and jump ten feet into each other's arms and land on our feet comfortably, and it would all be very... Elegant, you know, it would be, um, uh, the, what do you call it when people plan out dance steps? Uh, chor choreographed, perfectly, and we both know our parts. I have a lot of romance in me, you see. <laughs> so and then after that, and we always have really good food to eat, and, and we, the payoff, everything's perfect. We, we live well, and, and two cars, and chicken in every pot, or whatever, and all this kind of stuff. So everything's perfect, and then I thought to myself, well, if all of this happens, then... What's the end of the story? Well, the end of the story is just like the end of any other story that you can find in the human realm. And that is, we eventually, no matter what S.D. Howard does, we are going to get old because time's got to pass. He has not figured out the chemistry of time yet. So time's going to pass. The end is going to be the same. We're going to be old. We're going to, at some point, get sick. And then we're going to die. And I began to meditate on the fact that 
Whatever comes together in samsara has to separate. That's just the nature of it. It's never been otherwise. Whatever is born dies. Whatever is young gets old. It's the nature of it. And I meditated on that constantly. And then I would try all these other different scenarios, like, well, that, that's the best case scenario. So I tried to develop, oh, five or six best case scenarios. Um, and and, and I, I gave myself total freedom. Well, supposing none of this here in front of me works out, but supposing, um, I don't know, the, the ultimate man of every woman's dream rides up on a white horse and does that horse does not do-do in the lawn, which white horses are likely to do. So... Anyway, all of that happens, and the whole children thing works out. Everybody's rich, everybody's happy, everybody's famous, or whatever. Well, in my case, it would be private, not famous. But um, that would be the best-case scenario. So all, with all of them, I thought of what it could be like. And every time I explored it, I found that the end result was always the same. It was always old age, sickness, and death. The best ones, even if I, even if I had, you know, uh, what is it, uh, one of those... Uh, funds that you where, where you prepare for your for your old age and and even if it's just prosperous and wonderful right up until the very end and I I take up golf and die with a golf club in my hand I don't know something like that whatever it still is going to end up the same way and then I thought about well what are the pro- probable scenarios that will actually happen so then I had to be a little more realistic and I really looked at my life and I didn't like fall out of love with it or anything I just really examined it in as dispassionate a way as I could. And then I also examined what are the potential pitfalls. I also understood that you can eat health food, exercise all the time, sleep 10 hours per day no matter what, and, 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 and put yourself in a bubble where there are no chemical, chemicals in your environment and you can do anything you want to. And no matter what, you are still going to experience the same end result, and it's still going to be samsara that we are caught in. You cannot guarantee that even if you do all those things, the minute you step out in the street, a truck's not going to hit you. You can't guarantee that. And so I understood that even though this, many things about this life appear stable, in fact, they're not stable. So I prepared myself for that kind of understanding in that way, and I would do so every day, that kind of contemplation. Then I began to examine parts of my body. And I thought to myself, well, if this absolute nature is the only thing that makes sense, if this absolute nature is the only thing that seems precious and worthy and noble to me, and everything else that I find in this cycle of death and rebirth seems chancy at best, even when it's happy, it ends. I mean, it seems to me that it's nothing to take, take safety from. So I examined like that, and then I thought, well, what about my body? I mean, I take a lot of safety from my body. After all, if I didn't have it, where would I be? So I examined my, bo- my body, and I tried to examine it piece by piece so that I wouldn't leave anything out. So I remember I started with my feet. I thought it was best to start down and work up. So I started with my feet, and I, and I, and I really tried to do this as purely and, and this is my recommendation, if you want to practice in this way, try to do this as logically and purely and, and as dispassionately as possible. You won't be satisfied with your practice if you don't really cover all the bases. So it's really necessary to go deeply into this. Excuse me. So I thought about my feet, and I thought, well, okay, what can my feet do? What are they good for? Well, I like shoes a lot. They can wear shoes. So that's one good thing that feet can do. I can wear shoes that match my outfit. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So what's the next thing that feet can do? Feet can walk. So if my uh, baby's crying and he needs me, I can use these things to walk over and pick him up and help him. This is good. Feet are good. We're getting good now. Uh, Feet are good. They have toenails on them. We can paint those. They can match my outfit, too. More good news. So, what else are (laughs) We can roller skate with feet. Um, I I am personally addicted to foot massage, so we have that. That's a good thing. So, feet can take me anywhere I can go within reason. Within walking distance, feet can take me. Uh, They press the pedals on the car. Feet are good for that also. So I really thought, it sounds silly, but I went through everything I could think of that feet were good for. And then I thought to myself, well, 
considering all the sufferings in the world, considering what I've thought about already and how I've contemplated, what is it that feet can't do? Well, if my child became very ill, really ill, there's nothing my feet could do about that. I mean, in, in a way they could contribute. They could maybe carry him to a doctor, but ultimately they can't really do anything. Then I thought to myself, well, if I saw somebody suffering right in front of me, what could my feet do? Well, they could contribute again. They could take me to that person, but ultimately my feet don't solve any problems. And so I thought to myself, well, these things are really limited then. And I really kind of developed a feeling of, so what about my feet? Like non-attachment. Like they, it didn't seem to me like I should feel about this part of my body as though I were attached. And so I thought to myself, well, if these feet are so limited, what, what would be better? What would, what would be better to be here instead of my feet? And I thought to myself, if somehow that absolute nature, if somehow that primordial wisdom nature were here in this place instead of these feet, that would be something. That would be something. And so I actually would meditate on my feet and I would, I would go from the skin to the muscle to the tissue inside of it to the bones down to the very cellular level. And I would think this I offer to this absolute nature and I pray that in exchange somehow the blessing of that nature will be here and that where I am there will be some comfort in the world. And I used to pray that. And I, every single day I would pray that with such longing because I took the time to meditate on the faults of cyclic existence and the nobility and, and blessing of that primordial wisdom nature. And I could see the difference. And, and I was so moved. Here in this world, there's nothing of that. There's only the ordinary stuff. And so I would pray so hard. I felt like this whole thing is on my shoulders. I really took this responsibility for everything. And I, and I said, oh, I just prayed so hard that somehow this absolute nature would be here. And I felt like I completely renounced my feet. Like, like I looked at my feet and they would look like something else. They became to me very foreign. Um, suddenly I looked at my feet and I thought, I've given them up. I don't own them anymore. So if someone were to say to me, would you walk over here to help me? There's not even any point of saying yes or no. I've already offered my feet. They're going to do it. So I feel this, this sense of non-attachment or the realization that my feet are not, nothing to cling to. And so I would meditate like that sometimes for, it depended until I felt really satisfied that I had given these things up. Sometimes it would take a couple of days. Sometimes it would take a week. Sometimes it would take a month for just one element. And I would go from my feet to my ankles to my legs to my torso to, you know, my upper body and my head, as well as different external circumstances of my, of my life. I would think like that also. Like, for instance, my car. What good is my car? What can it actually do? Drive, big deal. But what, what can it actually do to benefit the world? That kind of thing. So I thought like that, that I would spend this whole time of preparation simply getting ready for what I didn't know. I really didn't have a sense of what the work was going to be. But I knew that this was the truth and that it had to be done this way. I really knew that what I was meditating on was the absolute truth. And so I, I went through all the different parts of my body. And, and in each case, every day, I would not be satisfied to stop my practice until I, tears had come to my eyes. And sometimes I would really cry. I would sometimes cry for the condition of other sentient beings. Or I would sometimes cry that this primordial nature is so noble and yet none of us have awakened to it. I mean, I just it seems so pitiful to me. That so close yet so far away to this nobility that is our true nature. Sometimes I would cry about that. And, and sometimes I would just cry with a kind of offering. I don't know. It was kind of like, you know, I offer my feet. Please accept my feet. Please don't let this be all there is. Please don't let this be the whole story. It can't be that this is. This can't be where, I'm, where, where we leave ourselves. It just can't be like this. So I would, with, with crying, you know, please accept these feet as an offering. And please 
in exchange, let that absolute nature be here. And so I would never be satisfied with my practice until I was actually crying or I felt that I had really understood to the depth of my heart that this was the way it had to be and that this was a kind of necessary generosity that was performed for the sake of beings. And I found, interestingly enough, that as I moved through the different body parts, that each one of us are kind of attached to certain parts of us that we identify with more. I don't need to tell you which ones they are, do I? <laughs> so, I found that we actually, we have this, this identity, uh, this, this, this assumption of self-nature as being inherently real, actually eventually leads to this sort of foundational sense of identity. And according to our programming, and according to our, primarily according to our habitual tendency, not only in this lifetime, but also in past lifetimes, we have a sense of self. And that self, of course, seems to be contained within the physical form of body. So maybe some women or some men, either one, might really develop a, a sense of their lower body, for instance, their legs and feet, as being very much a part of them. Uh, maybe some women might... Um, receive a lot of praise because they have beautiful legs or something. Or maybe uh, some men or women might, um, might be track stars, you know, really, really into uh, track and really like to run, really like to exercise. And so in that sense, they would develop a really fine awareness of their legs. They would really, uh, if, you, if, you, if you know someone that has been in sports to that degree or are competitive sports, you know that whatever, generally in, in terms of their body and specifically the parts of their body that they uh, are very much involved with, they develop a very keen sense of what that body part is. Uh, for instance, a runner would have a keen sense of the musculature of their legs. A bodybuilder would have a keen sense of what is the bicep, what is the tricep, you know, that kind of thing. They would have a really keen sense of that, uh, almost as though the mind and the body were somewhat closer, you know, than maybe to people that don't think like that. So uh, for some of us, we may have a really strong sense of our legs. But then for many of us, we identify very strongly with gender. And so when we come to the parts of us that identify us as either male or female, we're thinking, oh, well, maybe I won't give that up today. Um, I, I, for my, for as far as I can tell, this does me a lot of good. <laughs> so it may not be time to give this up just yet. Well, that, of course, I'm being funny and flip about it. But in fact, I found that in my own practice, that was something of a struggle. To give up that which identifies you as a woman or a man, my goodness, that's a big thing to do. That's, that's scary. And so I asked myself, well, okay, then we really have to examine what can this part of me actually accomplish. And I don't think I'm going to do that for you publicly, but I did honestly and truly go through the whole thing. It does some good and it does some harm. So... Uh, my, my experience was that uh, while um, the, that part of our bodies, uh, it, while we cling to it and while it identifies us, it is like anything else. It has its benefits, it has its pluses, it has its responsibilities, but it definitely has its limitations. And there's definitely a lot that it can do. And in fact, like anything else in samsara, it definitely causes lots of problems as well, which some of you may have noticed. But anyway... Then I went further and I found that another part that is very hard to think of as, as renounced is the head. Because most of us feel as though we live in our heads. We feel like that's really where we're centered. And maybe in some cases you might find that the heart is also hard to give up. Because we think, oh, heart stops beating, I'm dead. And there's a panic that comes up there. Um, so there are different things that we have to work through at any time. But... I found that the best way to proceed through that is slowly, slowly, always preceding it with meditation on the condition and suffering of sentient beings so that the motivation is there. And really seeing that no matter what, even if you have 10 hearts and 25 genitalia and 16 feet and all the different parts, if you had them in, in extraordinary condition and, and many of them interchangeable uh, in different colors and maybe even one print, Still, even if you had all of that, 
still the result is pretty much the same. And so I would meditate on that until I was really secure and certain in that. And then, and then, and sometimes in my practice, I would have to go back and maybe that day I didn't even make the offering of that body part. Maybe that day I simply had to remain in contemplation on these issues because I could feel that there was attachment there that needed to be dealt with. So I would work as hard as I could until I felt that I had gotten to some level of result and then I would continue and, and, and for certain, certain aspects of that practice, it really did take a month, a whole month, just for one small thing. And so eventually I found that I was able to go through every single part of my visible body. And then even there, I was able to think about my five senses, right? my eyes, my vision. That's another thing that really we are very much attached to. We, the idea of being without vision, of course, is terrifying. But then when we really examine what these eyes actually do, it's interesting to find out that while they do prevent us from running into, into trucks or maybe walking into walls or um, they help us to read books and we can watch TV and we can see our children, we can see our families, we can see our loved ones, we can see beauty, we can see in the mirror, that we can see all kinds of things. These eyes are really good, right? I've also found when I really examine them, that these are the eyes of dualism. That these are the, are the eyes that are actually literally an extension of dualistic thinking. These are actually the eyes that are meant to see samsara or the cycle of death and rebirth and only that. That's all they can show me. They're not able to see the primordial wisdom nature. They're able to see that mirror on my pretend altar that was like a symbol of that, but they cannot see deeply. They cannot really see anything. They are useful in that. Uh, eventually, I came to understand, for instance, without my eyes, I would not be able to read my prayers. And I would not be able to read text of any kind. So I've come to understand that definitely the eyes, like any of our senses, make us according to the way humans appear in this realm, complete. So that with all of our senses and faculties complete, I came to find out eventually that we can practice Dharma because of that. So this is a really good thing. But I have to say also that I find that the five senses are really, although they can be used to help an ordinary sentient being practice the practices that bring about the awakening to the primordial wisdom state. Still, I have to say that the ordinary use of these five senses is extremely limited. That I cannot directly use my eyes to liberate or terminate the suffering, suffering of anybody else right now. Eventually, maybe I can if I keep reading the text and really practicing. But for right now, well, I could maybe help somebody cross the street if they couldn't see. Or um, if someone got something in their eyes, maybe my eyes would work well enough to get it out. So there are pros and cons of the five senses, but ultimately I find out that whatever they are, they are not enough. I found out enough to know that I intend to use them to accomplish practice, that I intend to use them to benefit sentient beings. So I felt that ultimately, concerning the five senses, I found them to be more like workhorses. They should not dominate me. I should not look at the world and go, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. I want that, and I want that, and I want that. And everything's a big feast of desire, you know, and all I think about is gimme, 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 gimme. You know, the old mantra, gimme, 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 gimme. So uh, if I use it like that, then what are these things? They're just round spheres of flesh. Of flesh. They're nothing else. It's just meaningless. In fact, that they would help to... Hook me in even deeper to samsara if all I see is objects I desire. And I thought about my ears in the same way. I could become, I don't know, kind of like, maybe I would listen to some music, and I really like music. So I could become maybe hypnotized by the music. I could become entranced. I could become sort of addicted to music, and, and maybe that's all I think about is music. And in my head, there's always this music. Have you ever happened where you get a song, a song stuck in your head? And you think it will drive you out of your mind, that kind of thing. So what if I were to really do that with music and just remain in that kind of, oh, music is so wonderful. You might think, well, okay, the benefit of that would be that it could be relaxing. It could be pleasurable. 
Maybe if I share the music with someone else, it might make them feel temporarily better. But ultimately, if I use my ears to just give myself some kind of narcotic experience like that, what good are they? I'm going to stay in samsara, and I'm never going to get out. It's not going to produce any real result. Ultimately, I, I came to understand here, here in this day and age, I came to understand that with my ears, they are precious because I can hear the voice of my teacher. I can hear the prayers. I can hear the sound of mantra. So my ears have become to me precious, but I've also understood that in truth, while they may be a beautiful and precious animal, they are a workhorse. And they should not dominate me. I must dominate them. And so I'm thinking like that. Even with the five senses, I learned how to renounce them and how to experience them as something which will lead to ultimate benefit rather than something that is temporary. And I thought that way about touch as well. Touch can be very seductive. We can live our entire lives lives wishing, wishing nothing but to be in love and to touch our loved ones and to have that wonderful sensual kind of experience. And many of us have the kind of lives where we simply go from one of those to another and have that kind of experience. So it can be very seductive. And touch is good. I can comfort my baby. I can... I can um, soothe someone who is not feeling well. I can make happy someone that I can touch temporarily. But I came to understand that touch has its limitations and that it can be seductive. And I came to understand that ultimately it is touch that enables me to turn my page. I can tell where the page is like that, see? I can feel like that where touch tells me which, how to get to the prayer that I want. And so I've come to understand that touch is another animal that can be ridden and can bring about benefit. But in every case, from the different parts of my body to the whole total sense of my identity, to all of my senses as I understood them at that time, and even to the external circumstances of my life, like the clothing that I wore, the food that I ate, um, the car that I drove, the house that I lived in, all of these things that I examined, I thought of in the same way as having some temporary benefit, but that ultimate, whatever one receives, one will also lose. And that these things are very limited. And you might say to yourself, well, gee, you know, did you develop a kind of cynicism? Did you just like sit around making yourself miserable all day long? And I have to tell you that in truth, there are moments when I felt the grief of sentient beings, and I recommend doing this. I don't recommend letting yourself off easy, because it's like exercise. You know, if you don't put any weight in your hand, but you just keep going like that, maybe that muscle will get some blood in it. But if you take some weight in your hand, and you really think about it, and you really work it, you will develop a very tuned, very strong muscle. So it's like that. So I, I would spend, I have to tell you that I would spend some days thinking about the suffering of sentient beings, and it would not be happy. It would be really sad. One of the saddest things that I came to was the understanding that when I, when I picked up, when, uh, somewhere in this process I had my second son, and I remember picking him up. Here it is, a newborn baby. And so I'm looking into this face, and those of you that have had children, you know what that's like. You look into the face and you can see your genes. I don't know how that is, but you can. You can see that this child has your blood in them. It, there's just this connection. Plus, maybe there's something visible, like um, you recognize those feet. There they are again, or something like that. And um, you have this sense that, of that. So I remember holding, here's this newborn baby, and I just, this, this connection with this child, um, I breastfeed this child, I gave birth, birth to this child. child, child, at least in part, looks like me, loves this child so much, it's nothing like that feeling, you, don't, you can hardly think about anything else. And uh, so I'm holding this child in my arms, and I'm thinking, you, I will never let you suffer. I will never let you suffer. I will never let you get cold. I will never let you get hungry. I will, I will wherever you go, even if you have to go off by yourself, I will watch you and I will follow you and I will make sure that nothing happens to you. And so long as I am alive, you will have food, you will have clothing, you'll have a place to live, you'll be safe. And then I realized what I had just said. As long as I'm alive. 
Then I realized, that's no promise at all. What's that? I'm lying to my child. And then I thought about, well, well what if I could somehow pr provide for my child all the way until the time of their death? And I thought, yeah, but when my child dies, can I guarantee that that death won't be a suffering? Can I guarantee that it won't be a terrible feeling of loss or it may be painful in some way? You know, can I absolutely assure that my child is going to die in a painless way? There's nothing I can do about that. I don't have that kind of power. So I thought to myself, here I am. How disgusting. Here I am holding my newborn baby in my arms and I'm making all these promises and I'm lying. And this is the first thing I've done for my child is to lie to him. And that really made me unhappy. I just couldn't think what to do. And so I used that as a way to practice. And I thought to myself, therefore, this temporary reality, this human reality, it's worth nothing. If there is a way to absolutely embody this primordial wisdom nature, I know this nature is not limited by death. I know this nature is something that is all pervasive. I know it. I don't know how I know it, but I know it. And I think to myself, if only I could really embody this, this nature, then I think somewhere in there is the way to protect my child. And it was really being a mother that educated me into how to feel the same way about sentient beings. Because ultimately I came to understand that, you know, if you look at two children side by side because you're the mother of one and not of the other, <laughs> what is that? These are both my children. I mean, how do I say this is not my child and this one is? I couldn't even, that doesn't make any sense to me. So I came to understand that that was, that was the way it had to be. I had to not lie to sentient beings. I could not hold these beings in my arms and say, um, here I am for you. I'll do anything I can for you. Because it was complete, pardon my French, bullshit. You know, I was lying to them. And so I, I began to think like, well, if I could just, if this primordial, if this unlimited, luminous, pure, uncontrived nature that is free of suffering could somehow be here. That's it. That's it. But how to do it? How to do it? Well, I didn't, at that time, I really didn't have the answers, honestly. And, and I have to tell you that part of my life was, um, it was a, it was maybe like mountaintops and valleys at the same time. Because it was the bliss of feeling that I had come to understand the faults of this world and had come to truly reach for and lift my sights to something that was so much purer, so much better. And I really felt that, that bliss of that and kind of excitement of being on my way, a happiness about that, but the suffering of knowing that you could do nothing but lie to your child. The suffering of knowing that everything that we see, it looks so good. It's all colorful and wonderful. And it's bullshit. It's a lie. And that kind of suffering, it was a very difficult time. Plus the struggle of thinking, I've got to find a way. And, and I had no teacher who could give me the way. I had no teacher at that, that time who could, had not come into my life yet, who could say, all right, then do this, this, and this, and that will happen. So I'm struggling with this, and I'm thinking every day, what can I do? What can I do? I mean, literally, I had gotten myself into such a state that if I could have physically ripped out my heart and handed it to Lord Buddha himself, or no, I didn't think of Lord Buddha at that time, I, I forget. Uh, it was just that absolute nature. If I could rip out my heart and physically hand it to the absolute nature, I would do it because I, I was going crazy, kind of a little crazy. There was sort of this crazy yogi phenomena happening. You know, I was a little crazy with this, with this idea. And uh, I, I couldn't think about anything else. It was weird, you know, I would sort of reward myself at the end of, end of the day um, here on this farm, you know, and I remember I'd like sit down and have a cup of tea and a snack. I get this stuff in my mouth and I'm going, what is this? What is this that I'm doing? You know, and, and then I started thinking about my practice and thinking about my, the children, thinking about some beings in samsara, thinking about my mouth. Did, did, did I give this up or not? I did. And just the whole thing just became so disgusting to me. That I was, and so that's the kind of experience that I had. And many of you will say, well, I don't really want to have that kind of experience. Thank you very much. 
But I have to say that also within that was a tremendous amount of joy, like nothing I had ever experienced in the world. Greater joy than even my family, which I was very happy with and very much caring for and very close to. Greater joy than anything I could see or touch or eat or smell or anything. Because I felt that I could feel that here was some noble potential. That maybe it hadn't been actualized yet, yet, but somewhere was this noble potential. And the excitement of that was really happy. You know, it was really a happy and genuine thing. And I really thought, somewhere in here, there's going to be the solution for sentient beings. See, here I was, you have to understand the humor of this, is that here I am back in Candler, North Carolina, reinventing the wheel. Literally reinventing the eight-spoke wheel, because I didn't realize that Lord Buddha had already done this. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. So here I am trying to find the way. I didn't realize that Lord Buddha at some point made the same decision. He, he noticed that there was old age, sickness, and death, and he left to go figure out how to make this better. And he took off and tried to make it better. And so in a way, that's exactly what I was trying to do. If only I had known that there was, I could have short-circuited that a little bit. But then I have to tell you, that particular practice done in that way, from my heart, with very little guidance, and even especially that nothing was written down, so that I had to make it up, was so profound. And the wonderful thing about it was that when you practice sometimes, particularly Westerners, we have this habit. This is, I think it may be somewhat unique to us, because our experience is so multiple. I mean, we can go into the spiritual, spiritual supermarket and buy ten different kinds of bologna. That's the truth. And you can go anywhere and get anything. We have so much to look at, so much to think, so much we can have. That oftentimes when we, we're given this practice and the teacher says to us, okay, turn to page, thus and such. Okay, read this practice and you visualize like this. Then you say the mantra. Then you do the closing prayers. Do some dedication. Done. Practice is done. We tend to practice like we're writing out laundry lists. We tend to practice with the same fervent regard when I, on Wednesday, I make out my shopping list. And, 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 and it's with that kind of fervent regard, unfortunately, that Westerners tend to practice. We need this. We've got to have this. We're going for this. Let's do it. It's very much by rote. And so I felt that my good fortune was that this practice had to be brought up from the very depth of me. I mean, I had to, I had to feel it or it wouldn't work. And so that was my task. To the depth of my being, I had to find a way to renounce. And I had to face the part of me that was attached and addicted to whatever parts, things about my life that I had that feeling for. And I had to face the, the ramifications if I didn't accomplish this practice. That means we all get to die and everything just goes on the way it is. And that seemed to me unbearable, being as though there was so much suffering in the world. So I had to, like, it's as though I had to reach down in the depth of my gut and pull this up every day. It's like it was so hard and so rewarding at the same time. And I have to say that the, there, there are very few practices that I do at this time that matches with the intensity and the depth and the regard and the beauty that I felt at that time because in some ways it was so natural and so innocent, and so total, it, because I couldn't stop and go on to the next phase until I would really, really accomplished the previous phase. And that was the important thing. And, and unfortunately, we don't practice, we don't think like that at this time. So that was my practice every single day. <clears throat> the result that I've had over the years it's been that that practice has made my life much easier. In a way, it was kind of like putting money in the bank for the future. Uh, ultimately, I came to understand that my teachers have instructed me that that practice is called actually CHUD, C-H-O-D. And there's an umlau above the O. And actually, although there was, there's no text to go with it, so you couldn't say it was the practice of CHUD as it is written in the text, it, it is, has been called by my teachers the essence or essential nectar of Chud. And so I have been given permission to continue to practice, practice that way and also to teach others to practice in that way. 
And my experience has been that in the, in the future, it would eventually make my life a lot easier. Now, how is that? How is that? Well, I'll tell you. It came to pass that in the future, there are many sacrifices that needed to be made. And I'm not saying this so that you'll say, oh, isn't she a good girl? Save it. I don't care. <coughs> so, but there were sacrifices <coughs> that needed to be made. One of them was, if I'd had my druthers, I would still be in a farm in North Carolina. By now, I would not only know how to put up beans, but I would have the best darn garden you'd ever see. And all the farmers around would be impressed. <laughs> and I would have a dairy cow to boot. And, um, and, and so, I, you know, I, I, I would still be there. Um, I would still be very much isolated. I prefer a lot of privacy. Uh, even though I, I seem to be good at this. I don't know why, but I seem to be good at this. And yet I have to tell you that everyone who knows me well knows that to get me out of the house so that I'll come and do my job, it takes, oh, spraying with Pam and loosening her up with a crowbar. <laughs> so, I mean, it's not my natural tendency to want to come out and do this. I really don't like that kind of thing. And uh, uh, another thing that had to be given up not only was privacy, and that seems to be getting worse and worse, but also personal freedom. Uh, now I'm in the position where uh, if I decide that I want to go somewhere and just not think about whether I look like a Dharma teacher or not, just sort of be myself, I find that it's a little tricky because in, in, it happens pretty often that people will come up to me and they'll say, are you that Buddha lady? <laughs> it really happens on a regular basis. Uh, and I, I, in fact, one time at the airport, uh, somebody came up running up to me. Are you that Jetsa Jetsa Buddha lady? <laughs> that Jetsa Jetsa Buddha lady. That's me. <laughs> so I have to. Be, so I. So I have that kind of going on. And um, and you know, I I was not brought up as a Tibetan. I, I um, was not groomed for this job. I just got this job. And so I found that many sacrifices had to take place, uh, including watching my children have to give up their own privacy. And um, there, there, was just, uh, there were just a lot of issues that, uh, uh, particularly when we first came to this temple, when we first came here, um, none of the doors that you see were here. There were hardly any doors on the inside of the temple. Everything was very open. And this room was divided in half. And we used to live upstairs, but there were no doors between the upstairs and the lower. And so, uh, basically, I was not separate from the temple whatsoever. And the only coffee pot, get this, the only coffee pot in the whole place was downstairs where the, where the, uh, the kitchen room is downstairs now. And I slept upstairs, and I had to wade through students who would, because this place was open 24 hours a day. So I have to wade through students to get to my first cup of coffee in the morning. If that's not love, what is? So... How did that practice make all of this easier? And then my students would say to me, you never smile at me in the morning. Smile in the morning. <laughs> the weight of the bags under my eyes keep my cheeks from going up. What can I tell you? So anyway, <laughs> smiling was not forthcoming before the coffee. I'm sorry. <laughs> there, there's not that much compassion in the world. <laughs> So anyway, I, I eventually came to draw, draw a lot of strength and a great deal of comfort from that early practice because I found out that I never actually again ever had to make another decision. And that's what we struggle with all the time, you know. Should I spare this time to do my practice? Should I spare this time to practice compassion toward others? Uh, should I spend the effort to go over here and help that person? Should I do that? It's that thinking, should I, should I? Should. You, you burn more calories doing that than any of the good works that you actually do in your life. And so I found out that that head thing that we do when we can't decide and we always go through the dilemma of being a samsaric being, that was what was alleviated. And I never really had to make another decision ever. Again, I felt that from that point on, everything in my life had already been decided because I didn't own my feet, I didn't own my ankles, didn't own my body, 
didn't own my speech, didn't own my hearing, didn't own anything, anything. I had already decided that I owned nothing. Not, none of it was mine. And so then whenever it was called upon, well, will you do this? Will you do that? Will you do that? And now the ultimate test, the movie. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> will you do that? Yeah, I'll do that. You know why I'll do that? Because it's already decided. None of this really belongs to me. My job now is to protect every capability that I have or any effort that I've made in order to benefit sentient beings. That I will protect with fangs out, nails extended. That's when you'll see the meanness, meanness in me. That I will protect. But regarding anything personal, it's no big deal because it's already gone. I don't own it. So I take good care of it. I feed it well. <laughs> I exercise it. Um, but ultimately, I realize that I'm doing that in order to maintain strength, in order to benefit sentient beings. I don't feel that I own it. That's already given up. So the rest of my life became not a dilemma in some odd way. Even though there are many aspects of my life that would seemingly be problematic, it isn't a dilemma because already the mind's relaxed. And that's the, one of the great benefits of that practice. The mind becomes relaxed. You're not like sort of tense in the position of uh, getting ready to determine, getting ready to decide. You know, that, that, that requires a great deal of mental tension. So that's done. The mind's relaxed, and it's like, all right, there's a big yes happening. There's a big yes happening. I agree. I agree. It's already done. So I don't have to reinvent that dilemma and solve that dilemma every time. It's already done. That's the great blessing of a practice like that. Plus the great blessing that I have to tell you, once you really examine the faults of cyclic existence that way and the eyes of suffering, and I really recommend if you do this practice, and you can do it sitting, standing, any way you want to. Do it while you're walking around. Just constantly think like this. My recommendation is fill your eyes with suffering. Not your heart. Not your mind. Your eyes. We walk around feeling insulated. We don't want to see it. You know, uh, you're flipping through the channels and you, and you see that child in what? Bangladesh or Ethiopia, someplace like that, the ribs sticking out, you know, the, the face is, just, I mean, belly bulging, ribs sticking out at the same time, and uh, limbs that big around and, and crusty on the side of the mouth. And why? Because they haven't had any food recently. Like, and no food, no good food consistently. They're starving. And so, you know, the first thing we do when we see that? Change the channel, because we have the habit of not wanting to see that. We don't want to see that. My recommendation is spend some time seeing it. Stop turning away from the sight of suffering. Use that as a tool. It doesn't mean that you have to, you know, don't give Buddhism a bum rap. I'm not asking you to be unhappy. I'm telling you that if you really open your eyes and see, you are in a scene where you are half unhappy and half happy already. It's already mixed. This is not something you have to pretend. All I'm asking you to do is face it. Really look at it. Do not turn your eyes away from it. So fill your eyes with suffering. Stop faking it. We are a nation of fakers. Stop faking it and really see it. See what hatred produces. See what it looks like. Look into the face of it. See what hunger looks like. Face it. See what bigotry looks like. Look at it. Face it. See what it feels like. Look what ignorance feels like when, when yeah, the kind of like dullness and slothfulness that you just can hardly get yourself together. Get a good mouthful of that. See what that feels like. Look at all of this concerning ordinary experience in samsara. And then, having filled your eyes with that, you can use that as motivation as a reason to practice. So my recommendation is practice deeply, practice consistently. Do not turn your eyes away from suffering. Practice with courage. Be really courageous about this.
And do not be satisfied. Never let yourself off easy in this practice. To the bone. And then give them up too. Practice to the depth of your being until you are deeply satisfied, until you know that you would never take back that offer again. The offer to be a vehicle by which suffering might end. Do not give up your practice until you know that you've done that. Be a hero. All you got to do is be a hero one time. One time in your whole life. Concerning giving rise to compassion for the sake of sentient beings. Be a hero. Be undaunted. Do not be happy or satisfied with yourself until it is complete. Do not be happy or satisfied with yourself until you have really seen the suffering of cyclic existence and it makes you sick to your stomach that not only you but everyone you see is caught in it. Practice as deeply as you are able and you are able to practice more deeply than you could ever have imagined. So the goal here, of course, is to give rise to the bodhicitta, give rise to compassion. To realize the faults of cyclic existence, to realize that literally, and this was my kind of mantra almost at the time, not really a mantra, but I used to think this to myself, whatever I saw, there's no future in this. So that was kind of like this funny little saying I'd have, you know, in the future when I picked up a bag of potato chips, I'd go, well, I can eat it or not eat it, but obviously there's no future in this. You know, and I could look at any scenario in life and I'd go, no future in this. Because <coughs> I've, I've examined it, I've been there, I've done it. In my mind. And that's the awareness and understanding that you should be armed with. Understanding what is in front of you in that way is, is like, I've used this analogy before. It's like walking through a dark room. Let's say that, that the lifespan that you have can be symbolized by a room. It's dark because you don't know what it's going to be like. So let's say the room is perfectly pitch dark. All the shades are drawn. It's dark outside. No moon. Lights are off. We're talking dark. And it's like that because no one can predict the future. We have no idea what our lives are going to be like. But you have to walk through that room. So you have a choice there. You can either do what we're used to doing, which is eyes closed, nothing. You know, eyes are closed. You don't, turn, you don't turn on the light. You kind of just, like, take it the way it is. And like a fool, just walk through the room. Now, unfortunately, in that room, there's a sofa. There's a couch. There's a table, lots of tables. There's stuff on the floor. It's like any other room. It's furnished. Just like your life, it's furnished. So you're going to walk through that room, what, with the, with the light off? With your eyes closed? Guess what's going to happen? Try it in your room. Try it in your house. Just walk around for a while with all the lights off and your eyes closed. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to fall down. There's another choice, and this is the choice that Buddhism offers you, or that this kind of practice specifically Examining the faults of cyclic existence and examining what is the more noble way. That kind of practice offers you another alternative, and that is turning on the light. Having seen the faults of cyclic existence, that's like you're walking through this room, yes, but I, I know where the couch is. I can walk around the couch. I know where the chair is. I can walk around the chair. I know where the table is. I can walk around the table. Something on the floor, I can step over that. So... While it may not be our natural tendency to look at life in that way, it behooves us to have that kind of courage because ultimately it would be like walking through your life really seeing what it is, being able to avoid the obstacles, take advantage of what is there to take advantage of, and don't hurt yourself. So this kind of practice, it isn't like you're sentencing yourself to several months of the worst practice you've ever experienced. In a way, for the first time, maybe for the only time, you're being your own best friend. You're really looking, really seeing, not copping out. And because of that, you will be more competent to move through your life than you might have been otherwise. And not only that, you've given rise to the great bodhicitta, the great compassion, and you have understood that while you are alive in this world... <coughs> You cannot accept, you cannot bear the suffering of sentient beings. You see that it becomes somehow disgusting and unacceptable to you 
that your two feet, that yourself could be here in this world and sentient beings could be suffering. And that's why in the practice we give rise to renunciation, true renunciation. We totally give the self for the purpose of benefiting sentient beings. And practice like that will produce that excellent result. This is actually, according to my teachers, this is a combination of preliminary practice called Mundro, which is where we see the false cyclic existence and give rise to the bodhicitta. And it's also the practice of Chud. And there's no reason why any of you can't begin to practice like that right now, immediately, tomorrow, today. That practice can be done deeply, as, as I've just given instruction, but it can also be done in a more casual way as we're walking around. Examine everything you see. And even if you are not a Buddhist, that's fine with me. Even if you're not planning on being a Buddhist, but you're interested in these words and you have some connection with them. Great. You don't have to be a Buddhist to practice in this way, because when I practiced in this way, I wasn't. But it is the same ethics, the same morality, and the same beauty that I have later come to find in my religion, Buddhism. And so I offer this to you as a gift, and I really hope that you can take it with you wherever you go, and that for my friend it will bring you back safely, <laughs> and that for all of you, you will have the most excellent result practicing in that way. So thank you very much for being here today. Please enjoy um, your visit here. and. Remember that the temple is open 24 hours a day, so if you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and you feel like you've got to have a pizza, I can't help you. But if you wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and you feel like you've got to meditate, I'm your girl. So please do join us and feel as though you really belong here and live here. Thank you very much. This podcast has been a production of Kunzang Payul Choling. For more teachings, meditations, and resources, you can visit our online virtual temple at tara.org. That's T-A-R-A dot